Welcome to Why I Hate Your Podcast. These days, there are a lot of podcasts to choose from. This is another one. I'm Crystal, and each week my brother Sean and I meet up to talk about two podcasts and why we hate them, or don't. Join us and we might help you find your new favorite podcast, or save you from wasting time on a podcast you might hate. So today's podcast is Billionaire Boys Club, uh, which, sorry, I got a little confused because it, it has multiple meanings in the podcast. This is a podcast from the Wondery Network. It is a true crime podcast with two hosts, uh, Tracy Patton, who I believe she kind of runs this whole series that this falls under, but it has a guest co-host, Timothy Oliphant. This is a story about a guy named Joe Hunt and has a lot of... Wolf on Wall Street uh, vibes, but it includes like the mob and uh, crime and fraud. And it's a fascinating story. Uh, And this is all based on a true story. So this is a true crime story. I happened to randomly listen to this. It was uh, six episodes. I randomly listened to it on a car trip back from Tennessee. I was just like, all right, well, let's take a listen to it. And uh, I was actually thoroughly impressed with it, and even though it's typically not a podcast I would like, at least the format, but the format wasn't intrusive, and we'll kind of get into that as we go in. So I had recommended this one for Crystal to listen to, which I knew you like true crime podcasts, and I believe you are a Timothy Oliphant fan, so I was like, you'll probably appreciate that. From my understanding, you listened to all six episodes, what'd you think of it? Yeah, um, I really liked it. It was a fascinating story. I'm honestly shocked I had never heard this story. As I was listening to it, and, and this is a bad habit of mine with true crime podcasts. I don't know if anybody else has this problem, or even like history podcasts or or even history shows. I will go and Google characters in it or people in it, and, and I'll start reading, and then I'll spoil stuff for myself because I, I get too far ahead in the article. I'm like, oh, crap, that hasn't happened yet on whatever I'm listening to. But yeah, I had never heard this story, and there's actually apparently a movie about this. And it's with, terrible. Um, oh, no. Is it yeah, terrible? I think I believe it's it rated very poorly. Oh, because it had um, the guy from Kingsman. Anyway, I was hoping it was going to be good. I hadn't watched it yet. But yeah, so the quick kind of high level, high, high level note on the story. It's it's this guy, Joe Hunt. He kind of creates this cult of personality of, and it's in the 80s, of him and all these other either rich young men or young men who want to be rich and are very driven. And they all drive fancy cars and dress really flashy and spend a lot of money. And it's basically... Just about finding ways to to make money both legally and illegally. And it, of course, involves murder. I was pretty impressed with it. I had never heard, uh, well, I've heard of Wondery, but I did do some research and this, like you said, Tim, Tracy Patton is, she sort of runs the, the Hollywood and crime division of Wondery, I guess. And so they've got a lot of these podcast series. It is a limited run series, tells the whole story in the six episodes. The thing I really liked about the way they approached it was... They kind of did this time traveling between the two hosts. So you had Tracy Patton narrating from one point forward in the story, not start of the story, but basically where the first murder happens. So she starts there and then Timothy Oliphant will break in and he'll he'll be telling the story from the very beginning forward until he catches up with her timeline. And at first that sounds really confusing when you describe it, but what it does is it allows you to have, because it's not... It's linear, but it's two parallel, it's two storylines running together at the same time. They can cut from a cliffhanger point in one story, in Tracy's 
portion of the podcast and then they can jump back to what's going on where Timothy Oliphant is reading and you get the, the cliffhanger, right? Like, oh crap, what's going to happen? And then now it's jumped back. So it, it does add additional tension to the story. So I really liked that. And it, it, it clearly it's got a lot of production value. Um, there's a lot of sound effects. There's a lot of ambient music and ambient sound going on behind the, the hosts. I didn't find it intrusive. It's it's a little bit more radio show or radio play than, say, Park Predators, which we talked about, which was very, very much more ambient and sort of just sort of this lush kind of backdrop to the story, whereas this is a little more, it's not quite radio play level because it's there's not a cast, right? There are two narrators, but they're... They're playing all the characters, you know, when they're even when they're quoting specific dialogue and, and reading a dialogue between two characters. But there will be sound effects, sound effects like doors opening and cars peeling away and somebody banging inside the trunk where they're, they're tied up or something, you know. So it has a very rich kind of feel to it and a high production value feel to it because of all the, the sound effect work that they did. The two storylines, it actually took me a little bit to realize that's what they were doing. And so Tracy's kind of like the current timeline of what's going on. And then Timothy's timeline is young Joe. Like, how did Joe get into this position? Mm-hmm. And best way I could put it, it's like a, the whole story is kind of a mix between Wolf of Wall Street and Boiler Room, uh, which Boiler Room was a, I don't know, it was early 2000s, maybe late 90s movie with like Vin Diesel and Ben Affleck about a bunch of young stockbrokers who wanted to get rich. And they were commit. it was basically a Ponzi scheme, which I believe... That's mm-hmm. what Joe was running because he creates this, they call it the Bombay Bicycle Club, I think, but ends up just becoming known as the Billionaire Boys Club, the BBC. And like I said, it's kind of like this cult of personality. He's the leader of this group and he's got a bunch of his little lackeys with him. And one of the important characters is this friend, Dean. Dean plays heavily in the uh, in Joe's past as well. So you hear a lot about Dean and Dean's past from Timothy Oliphant's uh, narration of you know young Joe and young Dean. And so, like you said, it's it's kind of like this weird mix between audiobook and radio play, right? And mm-hmm. one thing that they're very good about, I think it's at the end of every episode, they specifically call out saying, okay, by the way, this dialogue is dialogue that's made up for this. Because we don't know exactly what they said to each other. We just kind of know the overall story of what happened. We know how the events played out, but they filled in, they took a lot of creative liberties kind of filling it in to add in dialogue and stuff like that. So... The only, the only problem I had, while the two timelines that they were telling the story, I didn't really have any problems with that. Where I did have problems was it was hard for me to keep track of who, what characters were what. Because everybody has very generic names. Dean, Joe, Ron, Bob, Bill, James. You know, just these very, you know, <laughs> non-unique names. Mm-hmm. And they don't use different voices for each character. Right. So I started getting really confused. Like, okay, who is this Bob guy again? Because I had no way of really differentiating who these people were. And I got, it was probably like within the first, probably the second third of it, I was getting kind of confused by what was really going on because it was hard for me to keep the characters straight simply because all the characters sounded the same. They all sounded like Timothy Oliphant and they all sounded like Tracy Patton, right? (laughs) And they all had these generic names. Um, It wasn't like one guy's name was Aiden or D'Artagnan or something, you know, that you can at least kind of associate. Oh, this guy's got a unique name. I'll remember him as opposed to just Bob. So I kind of struggled there. And and I think that makes the mark of like a really good, you know, audiobook uh, narrator because they'll give unique voices, at least inflections 
for each character, which doesn't happen here. And that's one of my biggest kind of complaints with it was that specifically. And and honestly, I usually am not a big fan of the whole radio play aspect where they add in sound effects in the back, like a dog barking or... Mm-hmm. Uh, like you said, the thumping someone beating on the top of a trunk or whatever. I'm usually not a fan of that because it just feels kind of cheesy in a way, but it wasn't intrusive, but it wasn't ambience like it is with Park Predators, right? All the background sounds are usually pretty, Just it's just mostly ambience. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, it's actually pertinent to the scene. Right. But it's not distracting, but it was still just kind of like, it's kind of, it, it almost feels like it's an extra thing that's not really needed, and so... It's some weird hybrid between a dramatic reading and or, or an audiobook and a radio play. It kind of reminds me, I think the very first audiobook I ever listened to, and it was an abridged one, which was a sin. It was the, it was an audiobook of the Timothy Zahn series <laughs> of Star Wars books and Star Wars nerds will know what I'm talking about, but they, they're no longer canon. And it was really, really well done. It was actually read by Anthony Daniels, who played C-3PO in the movies. So when he was C-3PO, he would do his voice that way. If he was other, he did put on different character voices. And he also, they also had occasional sound effects. And it was the first and only audiobook I think I've ever heard where there were actually sound effects. I'm sure there's others, but it wasn't quite to the extent that this podcast is doing. So it's, this one has a little more production value. There's definitely a lot of special or special effects, sound effects being played throughout the series. I, I think there was some creativity there. So like one of the ones that I really liked was there was a scene where there's like a TV in the background and it's important because it's playing a news story and they're trying to highlight what's on that TV because it's a news story about one of the characters. And so it's still Timothy Oliphant doing the news. You can tell it's him, but it's it's gone through a filter and it sounds like it's coming from a TV in the room. He was home making dinner. The local news was on television in the next room. According to an investigation by the Wall Street Journal, commodities traders top a list of professionals in America with the highest levels of stress. Poor little traders. Levin said out loud. His little dog, Kosher, wagged his tail in agreement. Levin had no sympathy for successful traders. They were smug and entitled, he thought. The whole lot of them. Here to talk about his experience on Wall Street is Jack Friedman of Clayton Brokerage. Jack's been on the trading floor for three years now. Levin stopped and looked at the young man speaking on his TV set. The kid was jabbering away, but Levin stopped listening. He was in the jittery throes of a damn good idea. So I thought that was kind of cool. So it has a really high production value. I think I think you're right. I think the thing that makes it a bit confusing is that it is just the two hosts doing, it's like a dramatic reading. They're not putting on voices. I think there's a little bit of, there's definitely a performance aspect to it. Certainly you get an actor, Timothy Oliphant's a good actor. I don't know if Tracy Patton has a good acting background, but she's very good at the reading. And Timothy, I would say, Oliphant, by the way, he's super serious in this. Yes. Yes, he is. He is completely playing it straight. In fact, I would say she was a little more, not flamboyant, but maybe exuberant. But I mean, overall, I think both of their performances were really good. I just think there's a lot of characters in this and you really do have to be paying attention to keep up with what's going on. Because again, there's no, there's not much in their voices that tells you who's talking. I mean, they try to put in like, if somebody's talking, they'll go, well, I don't know, Joe. Okay, he's talking to Joe. I think the way they wrote the dialogue helped with that some. But yeah, it could get confusing if you're not paying close attention. I don't know if, did you binge them all like back to back all the way through? So this is what actually one of my points is that I actually never finished it. 
What? Um, yeah, I, I, I know. Well, here's the reason why, and this goes into one of my complaints about the Wondery Network as a whole, is that we were listening to it on our way back, we're on our way back from Tennessee. We got through the first five episodes. We're like, oh, this is great. The sixth episode was out, but it was on a behind a paywall. And I was like, you know what? F that. I am not going to listen. I'm not going to pay money to listen to it. And then I just kind of forgot about it. Uh, yeah. Until we were like, oh, okay, what podcast we're we gonna review? I was like, oh, Billionaire Boys Club, and I never got around to listening to episode six. So, but I, I did, like kind of like you, I went to Wikipedia and looked it up, and I kind of know what happens. <laughs> right, right. But I was, I was very mad about that. It's like, oh, what? It's like, oh, if you're a subscriber, wonder you get early access to episodes, and I'm like, oh, God, no, why? Don't ever <laughs> do this. If you're a podcast network, don't put a paywall. Just offer perks, yeah. not a paywall. Right. Yeah, that was that was that would be frustrating. Obviously, that wasn't the case when I listened to it because all six episodes were out. But it is good to know if I'm going to listen to anything that's from Wondery to make sure that it's all out before I get invested in it. Because they I think all of their podcasts, I think, eventually come out free ad supported through a podcast feed. So you don't have to be a Wondery subscriber. Yeah. And I think it's like a it's like a month or something. It was like some ridiculous amount. I was like, oh, so it's not even like every week. Oh, Ew. No, I, I can't remember. It was it was like long enough for me to go, oh, well, I'm just never going to listen to that last episode again. Well, and the other thing I, I had a note on was that the ads were kind of annoying. They're not quite iHeartRadio level bad. Some, some of them are read by the host. A lot of them are just subscribed to Wondery ads or ads for other Wondery shows. So, which makes sense if most of their money is coming from subscribers for their episodes that are outside of their paywall, they just litter them with ads to please come and see Wondery and here's our other shows and come subscribe. So if you're going to binge one of these series, A, I would make sure it's all the way done before you try to binge it. And then B, especially one like this where you need to know what's going on and not have forgotten anything. Just be aware of the fact that you're going to hear the same ads over and over. There was not a wide range of ads. They were just very repetitive. So you're going to hear the same ones over and over again. They're just plugged in. Again, some of them are read by Tracy Patton. Others are from the Wondery Network. And and I think there might have been one or two that were just kind of commercial style ads. I can't remember for sure. Again, not as annoying as iHeart, but still not great. I think the ad break, there's only one or two. I can't remember if there was one or two ad breaks per episode, but they were mid-roll breaks. And that was actually one of my other points, was how many of the ads were just for the Wondery Network, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Not actual product placement. I mean, there was some of it, but it was mostly Wondery ads. And it's almost like you ever go to a gym and you you want to get a gym membership and they just oversell it to the point where you're like, uh, I, you know, I changed my mind. <laughs> That's how I felt about Wondery. I'm like, okay, they have a ton of podcasts, right? Right. And I actually know somebody who subscribes to Wondery because he's uh, he likes a lot of the podcasts on that network. But I was just like, okay, shut up about Wondery. I, I really don't care anymore. <laughs> and the fact that you have a paywall, it's almost like out of principle. I'm not going to pay for it. Right. And I, I prefer situations like, you know, a lot of people do Patreon, which is you still get our podcast for free, but you get perks for being a member. And I think that's a much more rewarding thing and much more incentive as opposed to saying, haha, you're going to have to wait unless you pay us money. That just put a bad taste in my mouth for that network as a whole. It's like they're holding that up, that final episode hostage. <laughs> that's what it felt like. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> yeah, I can't. I think that's, that's an interesting choice. I mean, I don't have a problem with subscription services for podcasts like that. I think, you know, networks where they actually charge a subscription fee, it's kind of like, you know, paying for your HBO Max or whatever. But I do think if they're going to make those available outside of their network, 
but now with ads, right? Because if you listen on Wondery, there's no ads. I think that's fine. I think it's a model you can do. And I don't even have a problem with you having an ad in each episode about Wondery because that's, you know, where you ultimately want people to go. But I agree that it's kind of a jerk move to put like the last episode behind a paywall. Like just publish them all out either on a schedule or all at once and just remind people that you could have access to other shows or whatever behind the Wondery paywall. So this is the kind of quality thing that we do and you wouldn't have to listen to ads, right? That becomes the perk. You, you get to listen ad free. So yeah, I, that's that's kind of a jerk move on their part. That yeah. would piss me off too. Yeah. And, you know, to be honest, I mean, there, there is a comparison to be made to like YouTube premium because there are stuff that's locked behind that paywall, mm-hmm. uh, specific series. But it's not like, hey, here's the entire series except for the last episode. The entire series is free except for the last episode on YouTube premium. It's like, well, the whole series is locked out. Right. Right. Or they might have one. They might have one episode that's free. And then after that, right. it's like, yeah, right. it's like they, they don't. Yeah, it's a preview as opposed to saying, oh, you're so like you're totally hooked in it now. Sorry. You got to pay up. And of course, you know, YouTube premium, you get, you know, an ad free experience, which is the only reason really I pay for it. And believe it or not, people don't realize this, that if you have if you're a YouTube premium, any videos you watch from your favorite creators, they get a little extra money for their ad revenue because I'm not seeing an ad. So they actually do get a cut of your premium membership. So it still helps out creators that you want to support on YouTube. Yeah, I like that model. And so it's a little bit different, you know, and I could see people like, well, if you want to watch Breaking Bad, you got to pay for Netflix. Yeah, again, it's not like you can go to Netflix and watch the first five seasons of Breaking Bad and then you can't watch the sixth season. Right. So, yeah, that, that argument doesn't pan out to me. Yeah. So, yeah, it put a bad taste in my mouth for Wondering. And from my understanding, Wondering has a lot of great podcasts, but I, I will be very reticent to try to support that network. I will. And that's the thing is, is podcast is a different ball of wax than something like Netflix, right? Where there's a known, there's known things that are on Netflix that you're aware of that are really good. Like Wondery, it's kind of this black box. You know, there's good podcasts, but are there enough to justify? Yeah. And I love these kind of limited run series. I love them because it's not like this commitment. Like now, okay, now I'm tied to this new podcast and we'll listen to it forever. I love it, but now I've got to find the time for it. I love these kinds of limited runs because I can, I can binge the whole thing. And I, I will say one of the one of my notes on it was that I feel like this, sometimes with these limited run series, I feel like they can sometimes drag them out. Same is true of documentaries when they're based mm-hmm. like a series. I, I've, there's been some true crime documentaries I've listened to where or watched where you could have done this in two to three hours, but you stretched it into six to seven hours over it's multiple kinda episodes. kind of like Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. <laughs> That is different. There's, there's, that is so different. That is not even what I'm talking about. It's when it's stuff gets really repetitive or they spend all of their time telling you information that is not relevant to the murder or the story or whatever. And in this case, I feel like it was just right. I didn't feel like there yeah. was episodes where it was plodding along or they were sort of filling or telling us stuff that we're not going to care about. Like they could have probably, as an example, they could have probably spent a lot more time with with about Dean, learning about Dean and his parents. They gave you a little bit of info on his parents because they did play a role later in the story or kind of midway through the story, but they didn't spend a whole long time talking about Dean's childhood and his parents. Like they could have, but they didn't because it really yeah. isn't relevant to this, the story, which is the crime that happened. I, I will give them that. I, I don't feel like they tried to drag it out to get more episodes out of it. No, and the pacing was really good. There was no points where you're like, Ugh, I, I, you know, just move on. It was just a really well-paced series. Me personally, I I, do, I don't hate this one, right, as far as limited series go. And actually, 
<laughs> to be honest, this is actually my first limited series podcast I've ever listened to. Even though Park Predators, I guess that's not limited series. I guess that's still ongoing. It's just it's slow to get new episodes out. This is actually the first limited series I've listened to because I, I, for the most part, I've kind of wanted to avoid them because I was afraid it was going to be kind of like a radio play. But I know some of them kind of read up more like straight up documentaries and stuff. Um, Mm-hmm. And I guess you could even call Dan Crown's Hardcore History a limited series because each subject, I mean, he's only going to talk about it for three or four episodes, maybe six episodes at most, and then he's done with that subject. Right. But as far as listening to all the way through, this would be my first one. And I really did enjoy it. Didn't hate it. Although Wondry annoys me. So there's that <laughs> aspect of it. But no, it was, it was a great listen. And since I think I think since the last episode is no longer under, under a paywall, from what you were saying, then, you know, I would definitely recommend it. Yeah, I don't hate it either. I really liked it. I enjoyed the story. I think it was well, like I said, it was really well produced. I would be willing to dip into more Wondery podcasts that are outside of their paywall <laughs> for uh, for the future. So, I mean, obviously there's no, I'm going to subscribe to this because it's it's done. It's a limited series, but I would I would recommend it. Uh, so today we're talking about the Rubin Report. This comes from Dave Rubin. He used to be a part of the Young Turks, which the Young Turks, I, I do believe they have a podcast, but YouTube is kind of the primary audience for both, the, I would say for both Dave Rubin and the Young Turks. But he used to be part of the Young Turks, which is a kind of a left-leaning news program type thing, but he left them in 2015 and he started his own thing. He is a former comedian, although I think he still kind of dabbles in comedy occasionally, but his podcast, for the most part, is fairly political. Dave is an individual who very openly, kind of in a Tim Pool sort of way, very openly talk about how he feels that the Democratic Party has, has moved left and kind of left him behind. And so he's kind of a man without a party. And so he started his show on YouTube, which is now, yes, has, has it as a podcast. And majority of his content is him interviewing various people, and he has people from wide spectrum, a variety of people from, you know, all sides of the political spectrum. Most of his guests are going to be people who are kind of that libertarian, center-left, center-right sort of people. And ever since the uh, whole move from COVID, uh, and there's a bunch of drama between Patreon and locals, which we'll get into. His format's changed a little bit. He still does have interviews. I think it's kind of just gotten harder for him to get interviews because the whole COVID thing. He is based in LA, which LA is completely shut down. I think they just recently announced that they're going to be shut down indefinitely. <laughs> so, which has a lot of people over there very frustrated. So him being in LA during COVID, it's kind of, I think it's getting hard for him to have guests. Uh, so this format has changed a bit, but I do think the majority of his content is interview based. I've kept up with Dave for quite a while because his rise kind of matches the whole rise of the IDW thing, which we'll kind of go into detail there uh, later. But his show is kind of, at this point, I feel like it's kind of a little bit all over the place, but I've been listening to him for a quite a while, a couple of years, probably the 2016, uh, probably around 2015, actually, is when I first started listening to him not long after you left the Young Turks. As for you, on the other hand, I know politics isn't your bag, so I don't know where Dave Rubin would fit in with your taste in podcasts. I had never listened to him as a, in podcast form, I would say. I want to say around 2016, I became aware of him as an interviewer. I did not know that he had a background in comedy or that he was with the Young Turks or any of that. Because again, I don't really I don't watch a lot of political stuff on, on YouTube or whatever. So I don't really know how I stumbled across him. I, I want to say it might have been he was interviewing somebody I was interested in, interested in hearing more about or listening to an interview with. It might have been Jordan Peterson. I don't remember who it was. But that, I think it probably was around 2016. I really had a 
positive impression of him because he was not hyperbolic, which is, you know, my big pet peeve. He was just very kind of quiet spoken. His questions were insightful and thoughtful. There's a little bit of, I don't want to say spin, but there's a little bit of, and I think it's more so more recently. His questions can be a little bit leading sometimes. So you get, you can kind of tell when he's asking the question what he's expecting to hear or what he's wanting to hear or where he stands on it. There's not a ton of that back then. There was some. I did pick up on it a little bit, but I think it's way more prevalent now. So I think his interview style has changed a lot. So I, I really liked what I saw back then in terms of how he conducted his interviews and the questions that he asked. Like, I think I saw an interview where he I'm trying to remember who it was. It was somebody politically on the right who was really unhappy with Trump might have been Ben Shapiro. And so he was asking him questions and it, it just, the nature of the questions were really smart. They were different than what you would hear other people, what you'd heard other people ask in, in interviews of that person. So I had an overall pretty good impression of him. I, again, didn't listen to a ton of them, of the episodes that he had out on YouTube. I just kind of, it was, it was like a brief window where I came across one. I thought, hey, he's a pretty good interview. And then I sort of went down a rabbit hole and listened to several more but then it kind of fell off my radar because, again, it's not I don't spend a lot of my time and, and a lot of his interviews are long form interviews. I don't spend a ton of my time listening to political interviews because I find it exhausting. So I had a really positive impression. when. so when you suggested this one as a podcast, I thought, OK, well, I'm assuming it's going to be more like just basically his YouTube show, but in podcast form. And I think it is. But he's clearly shifted a little bit or his not shifted. That's the wrong term. His style has changed and this the format of the show has changed. I think, as you said, some of that is just because of COVID and it's sometimes hard to get people in for interviews. So they're not always in person anymore. I think most of them this year have been, you know, over Skype or whatever, whereas previously they were in person. And I feel like a lot of his questions now are way more leading. Um, and it seems like his guests are all kind of in the same bucket of people that kind of cross over this same, like, if, you know, if you look at, uh, I don't know, Ben Shapiro, Tim Pool, to some extent, Joe Rogan, and then Dave Rubin, and there's probably more. There's like this circle, maybe Sam Harris, there's this circle of people that interview all the same people, it seems mm -hmm. like. Yeah. I looked through his list of people that he had interviewed recently this year, and it was like, I, I could have guessed that those would have been his the people he interviewed. I think Adam Carolla was on there, which was a little bit of a surprise. I was like, oh, I hadn't heard from him in a long time. He's been on, he's been on Ruben a couple of times. Yeah, he, that was one of the ones I listened to. But yeah, so I felt like, and I don't feel like a lot of his questions, there was a little more hyperbole in them than there used to be. And a little more... Again, like I said, I feel like the questions were more leading where he's like, oh, I know this is a friendly, like we're on the same page. So I can ask you this question in a way that states, boy, I think this is dumb that everything is locked down. What do you think? That kind of leading thing where I already know what your answer is going to be, but this is just a chance for us to bitch about it. <laughs> it didn't, I didn't find as much value in it. And I only listened to a couple of recent episodes. So it's probably not a real fair, fair assessment because it seems like all of the political podcasts are all talking about the same things right now so I'm kind of burnt out on it but yeah I did notice he also does what What would you what do they call the direct message I think they're called direct message episodes where it's just him yeah and I agree those are not as good as the interviews like he was I listened to an episode where he was he was talking about I think Joe Biden at the time it was from a little while back had, had done a speech where he was coughing a lot and so he played a clip of it and then he made fun of it for like five minutes it felt like way too long and it was super hyperbolic it was just it was dumb. I think he thought he was being funny, but it wasn't funny. But putting that aside, well, now they're saying he has a cold. 
you know, his wife, Dr. Jill Biden, thank God he's married to a doctor, right? She has now said that he has a cold. So he does have a cold. I'm guessing in a couple weeks we'll find out he probably has COVID or, or something else. There is no chance in high hell that this guy is going to be president for more than a year, even if he is to be sworn in on January 20th. Or they'll basically just lock him up and they'll, they'll issue statements or he'll have to do things only off teleprompter from a bunker. There'll be no live questioning. It's just so freaking obvious. I don't know what to tell you, but he's, he's not well. And imagine if anyone else was talking and all the time they, they were talking and they're giving the biggest speech of their life and I'm gonna be president for everybody. And, and also you're not supposed to cough in your hand. He's coughing in his hand the whole time. And, you know, we have improved integrity of the election. I don't know. I just, I don't think he does well on his own. I don't think he's very funny. And I think he thinks he is. And I'm not sure his interview style has improved. I think it may have suffered a little bit over time from operating in the same circles. You know what I mean? Yeah. And typically it's like if I see like Michael Malice is on Joe Rogan, of course, this is back when Joe was living in L.A., then I knew he was going to be on uh, Ruben the next day. Right. Or Vince Shapiro was on Joe Rogan. He was going to be on Ruben the next day. It was like that was the second guest you went to after you went to Joe Rogan. Right. Dave Rubin. Now that Joe's moved to Texas, which everybody's moving to Texas. And to give Rubin and Adam Carolla both some credit, because I think that's what the episode you're referring to. I think everyone's kind of bitching about L.A. living in L.A. right now. So um, I think everybody is not happy there. But yeah, I no, I agree. I think so. There was this weird shift and I noticed it. Not long after they launched Locals.com. Prior to that, you know, Dave Rubin did have a Patreon. Uh, I don't know if he's even monetized anymore on YouTube. And you should explain what Locals.com is because I don't know what that is. So I'm sure most people are aware of what Patreon is. And so there was a big kerfluffle because Patreon, and he even had the CEO of Patreon on, on the Rubin Report years ago. And where they said, you know, whatever you do on the platform or off platform, we don't care about. We won't ban you for things that you do off platform. Until they did it to someone who was, I don't know, maybe in the top 20 Patreons, Carl Benjamin, which I've mentioned before. Mm. And that caused a cascade effect where Ruben, Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, and a couple other people left Patreon. You know, just kind of out of solidarity because they Patreon really had no right to ban him based on their terms uh, since no terms were broken. And so and that was we're talking like millions of dollars here. Right. Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson alone was a lot of money because they were like in the top mm-hmm. five top patrons or Patreon accounts. And Ruben has struggled to get monetization on YouTube simply because YouTube has definitely shadow banned him. Like I, I watched his content a lot and just fell off my radar. Like to YouTube stop recommending it to me. I have to actually go out and find it. He's ob- he's definitely shadow banned on YouTube. And I, I wouldn't ever say that he's controversial. You could say sometimes his questions are leading, sometimes he's a little hyperbolic, but he's not controversial. Unless people, I, I think people want him to be controversial, so they try to make it out to be, which is the whole subject we'll get into. So he launched Locals.com, which is supposed to be kind of a Patreon replacement. And it seems like ever since that happened, since he, and I believe he is, he may be the guy who runs Locals.com, I think. Or he's up there within that leadership of that organization and from my understanding locals is actually doing fairly well as an alternative because people have been kind of looking for that alternative ever since then i've noticed the change and it could be simply because locals.com is 
has kind of become an echo chamber in a way because Silicon Valley just hates people like Ruben, Peterson, Rogan, all these other people. You know, they try to memory hold them. They try to push them away, push them out of the algorithms and stuff like that. And so all these people who the Silicon Valley said, we don't want you have kind of flocked over to locals. And so there's kind of like this echo chamber that's been created because I do agree. I think he's gotten a lot more hyperbolic. His guests have gotten to be much more populist right-wing conservatives. Whereas you look at his older content, he would have people on who were, I mean, he's had, you know, Larry King on. He's had uh, a number of, you know, Democratic pundits on. He's had, I mean, he used to work for the Young Turks, which is, as of now, you can't really get much more left in the Young Turks. Uh, which is funny. They almost fetishize Dave Rubin. It, it's really weird. They, they, they're they very bitter that he left and they take every opportunity they can just to moan and complain about Dave Rubin. It's like, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Especially Anna Kasparian. It's almost like you have a bad ex-boyfriend or girlfriend who just stalks you on Facebook. And every time you post something, they post like really mean message that that's the Young Turks. Uh, they just can't <laughs> let it go that Dave Rubin left. So I think Jimmy Dore, David Pakman, who's also pretty left, uh, I, th- I think maybe even Kyle Kalinske, uh, who's fairly left, has been on Rubin before. And Rubin is a guy, you know, he is a gay man. He's married to his longtime partner. Like I said, he supports uh, marijuana legalization. Yeah, um, yeah. But I mean, he supports Second Amendment rights. He supports free speech and stuff like that, too. So he's his viewpoints are not controversial, but people want him to be controversial. And what the problem is, is that when you have YouTube and, you know, all the people who just gotten so, so progressive, they see him again as this alt-right, the start of the alt-right rabbit hole. It's the same thing that Joe Rogan got blamed of, right? Because he's had Ben Shapiro on. Well, that means Ben Shapiro videos are going to get recommended to you. And this starts the rabbit hole, the evil rabbit hole that's going to send you down into white supremacy. woo um, well, not anymore. I mean, now now none of those guys get recommended to anybody on YouTube. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, but th- but that's the thing though is that now it's gotten to the point where Ruben can't get those guests on anymore. And he's talked about this before: is that he's politically, for the most part, he's stayed where he is. The Overton window for the conservative has kind of moved to encapsulate him, and he's embraced that. And the Overton window for the left has just moved and left him behind. And him being in LA because he hasn't moved with that Overton window he's been completely ostracized and he talks about it quite openly like LA is it's a hostile city against him and he doesn't have he used to have a lot of celebrity friends that he just doesn't have anymore uh simply just because you know you get ostracized for not being super woke and I'm amazed he hasn't left LA yet to be honest but yeah no he made a comment on one of the well, I listened to uh, the first half of uh, the best of, best of twenty twenty series he did just recently, where it had clips of which just small little nitpick. But if you're gonna have audio, like I get it, he has a, a YouTube version of this, I'm sure. But if you're publishing it as a podcast, you need to have an interstitial between each one saying, "Here's when I interviewed so and so," because I don't recognize their voices, so it's impossible to tell who's talking. Uh, but anyway, so he did the best of twenty twenty, and in that, he made the comment. That, and I think this this we talked about this with Brett Weinstein and his wife that he prefers to stay and fight right. versus just saying, well, California has left me behind. The Democratic Party has left me behind. I'm going to leave now. So I think that's his thought is he wants to, to be a voice in the middle of that trying to say, no, it's still OK to have free speech. And it does. <laughs> I understand like his frustration because it, it just seems goofy to me now that free speech is now no longer 
something that the left supports. Like they're actively, there is a portion of the Democratic Party that actively wants to no longer have free speech, but ban certain types of speech. And it's one of the talking points I've heard on multiple, both left and right. But but there is a segment, and I think Dave Rubin's a good example of it. There's a segment of the liberal party or the democratic party who are still liberal by the, the definition of what liberal is, but they no longer... They've been ostracized by their fellow Democrats because they don't fall in line on every single bullet point. And what's funny is it seems like the Republican Party, not the Republican Party, I would say the conservative side seems to be fine with embracing them and saying, hey, yeah, we'll get, well, we don't care that you also want legalization of marijuana. Come on over to this side, which I think is why somebody like Dave Rubin and even a Tim Pool, they get they get labeled as conservative, which now being labeled conservative is the same thing as being labeled as a terrible, horrible human being, and you must be ostracized. So, you know, I'm not surprised. But I think that's why, that's probably why he's, he's, I think the, the changes I've seen in him are, to your point, the result of how he has been pushed out of the mainstream. That effort by all the different big tech companies to silence and push out these characters who have dissenting opinions into their own little bucket, that bucket now becomes an echo chamber. And so they all have the same talking points. They all have the same guests on. I understand how they got there, but it is kind of exhausting (laughs) because, you know, I was listening to it and I was just, because like you said, I loved his interview show because he had so many different types of guests on and his questions were very 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 good insightful neutral questions and now he seems like he's almost become a little bit of a a caricature of himself yeah Yeah. I, i think he's taking on he's taken on some mannerisms and or ways of expressing himself that i think fits into that echo chamber but doesn't feel as i don't know what the word i'm looking for is but he felt more kind of truly independent of a particular political agenda and now it feels like he's more he's in that I don't want to call it outright because it's not he's he's that that weird gap of people who are they're basically centrists but now because everything's shifted so far left they're they're considered conservative because that Overton window now includes them yeah so I, yeah I like his interview style I need to listen to more because like I said I only listened to a couple of episodes that I thought the best of 2020 was a good chance for me to hear kind of a mix of what's been going on over the last year but the last year's been so strange that again all the topics are lockdowns COVID you know Black Lives Matter Antifa there's like five or six talking points that yeah. everybody's been talking about for the last year and it's well, just so exhausting yeah, and I think it, because everything's gotten so hyper-politicized, even things that shouldn't be political is politicized. And mm-hmm. I think that's why people just don't want politics in their non-politics podcast, which, you know, we've talked about other podcasts that, you know, they will insert their smuggy uh, or schmarmy, you know, political opinion. It's like, this is not a podcast about politics. I, I just don't want it in everything. Mm-hmm. But yes, this is a political podcast, obviously. But everything's gotten so heavily politicized. It's like he's become more politicized as a result of that. And it, like I said, this weird this year has been weird because I said it looked like his format changed when Locals was launched. But Locals launched right about the time COVID was really at its height. And then you had <laughs> BLM and, uh, and Antifa and stuff. And everything just got really weird. And everyone just got hyper politicized. And maybe yeah. he fell into that trap because this earlier stuff, he was not as politicized. Yes, granted, he had political guests on, but he himself didn't feel he felt like a true centrist. Right. 
who just like, yes. you know, is it me or has everybody just gone out of their minds? That's kind of like his whole thing. It's like everyone else is going crazy but me. The right. people who are on this far right, the people who are on the far left, everyone's gone crazy. I feel like I'm the only sane person in the room. And I think because the right has embraced him, he's kind of embracing them as well. Even though I still think he believes in his core liberal beliefs, you know, like same-sex marriage. I mean, oh, yeah. But I think the perfect example is him and Ben Shapiro are actually very close friends. Yeah. But Ben Shapiro said, I refuse to attend uh, Ruben's gay wedding. Yeah, he came to the reception. Yeah, he, he came to the reception, to the but he refused to go to the wedding. Yep. But Ruben was okay with that because he's like, yeah. you have your religious, you know, your opinion, your religious, in which anybody doesn't know, Ben Shapiro is exceedingly religious. And but they're okay with that. They can reconcile those differences. You know, yes, we're different, yeah. we have different opinions, but they're still really good friends. And mm-hmm. so Shapiro doesn't hold, you know, the fact that Ruben's gay against him. He doesn't. He's a friend. So right. um, whereas on the left, it's like, oh, you talked to Ben Shapiro. Well, we hate you now. I think that's I think that's an interesting and I think that is why maybe he's changed a little bit, because if if let's say you have a nice mix of friends, you have friends that are super liberal, you're living in L.A., you're going to have a, a big circle of liberal friends. And then you have a, a smaller group of maybe libertarian or conservative friends. And in the climate that we're in today, if you have one thing that you disagree with from the Democratic Party, if you say, okay, I don't, I'm trying to think of something he disagrees with uh, on the left. Oh, uh, maybe, okay, let's say free speech. Let's go real simple, right? So I think all speech should be free, you know, you should be free to say whatever you want, even if it's hateful or hurtful or whatever. There are social consequences, but we want to make sure that the government isn't controlling how you speak. That's very liberal. That was one of the main aspects of the democratic party when i was growing up was like they were the ones that were against censorship and against all forms of censorship it was always the left side of the aisle that was against that so if you say that you're you know against the idea of classifying certain speech as hate speech and making it illegal and that one statement has all your friends on the left abandon you. They refuse to speak with you. They refuse to engage with you anymore. They will literally end your friendship. But your friends that are who are libertarian or who are conservative will say, well, you know, we don't care that you support health care for all. Or we don't care if you want that. Yeah, I don't agree with you. But it doesn't mean I hate you as a person. Naturally, you're going to spend more time with those people because they'll remain your friends. And so I think maybe that's why his overall tone has drifted somewhat to be more one side over the other. I, I agree. When when he was doing interviews before, he felt much more, I, I am a liberal, but I like to listen to people from both sides of the aisle. I want to listen to people who are also not liberal. And so his interviews were very balanced um, in terms of both who he interviewed and what questions he asked and how he how he interviewed them. But now he's been pushed away from anybody, you know, not of his choice, but of anybody who would have those those opinions. And when you can no longer engage with people of a certain group, it's hard to continue to maintain that level of of impartiality, right? If you're suffering ostracization, you know, you've been ostracized by that group. So I guess I can understand if he's starting to sound. And I think the difference is it's not so much that he sounds more conservative or more libertarian or more politicized. He just sounds more like, I think politicized is probably accurate. He sounds more like a radio talk show host now than he did before. Before yeah. he was just an interviewer. He, he felt completely neutral other than the fact that he was asking the questions. Now it feels more like he's the host of his own show and he has guests on that he then interviews about the things he wants to talk about. So it's a different format. And the nature of that format allows him to talk more about what he thinks. So 
I'm not saying that's a bad format. It is a completely valid format. I just think I liked his old format better. Right. Well, and I think he was in this weird place where he didn't feel like, and this is 2016, 2017, Dave Rubin, where he didn't feel like the right represented him and he didn't feel like the left represented him. And so he was trying to explore, he was trying to explore, you know, what these sides are, uh, mm-hmm. trying to explore where he belongs. And I think what was interesting, because he, he's very much in, in part of the whole intellectual dark web clique, if you will, which is mm-hmm. like Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson, Brett Weinstein, Eric Weinstein, Joe Rogan, and Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro is the only conservative among that group, by the way, where he kind of because he's actually really good friends with Eric Weinstein and Eric's been on there multiple times. And those interviews I highly recommend because they're very fascinating. Eric Weinstein himself is a very fascinating person. And Dave is not like that super intelligent. So he kind of brings Eric down a little bit, which is helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) But that's kind of where the and I think it was actually on Ruben's show where he kind of coined the whole idea of the of the IDW. And so Ruben's kind of ride that coattail of the ascent of the idw and he would never claim that he's part of the idw but he's more of a an agent of it if you will Mm -hmm. because dave knows he's not really he's not a super intellectual person i think he knows that like you know these everyone else is way smarter than this ex-comedian who used to be on the young turks so but i think it during those idw days there was a lot more conversation and exploration of ideas radical crazy interesting ideas that no one was really talking about and I think that's that period where Dave was actually, he's wanting to learn stuff uh, mm-hmm. from his guests. That's where Dave Rubin was at his best. And it, it seemed to be this weird point, like right at the you know beginning of 2020 with the whole COVID and just all the craziness with locals and everything. It just, there was this kind of shift. And I haven't been able to keep up with him as much simply because one, him by himself, he's not that strong. So the episodes where it's mm-hmm. just him doing his hot takes... I don't really care. I, I don't find him. I don't find him interesting, right? I find his guests interesting. And it was right. kind of the same thing we said about Rogan. It's really the strength of the episodes are more so about what guests he has on. Mm-hmm. So naturally, if he has Michael Malice on, it's going to be entertaining because Michael Malice is just a very entertaining person. Ruben doesn't add a ton to that. But I feel like he, like you said, it's now more his show and he's having guests on as opposed to let's just sit down and have it. I'm just going to interview somebody. Right. And so I, I do agree that I think that's a really good comparison. But while we say that, you know, he's kind of gotten more right, his his questioning is a little bit more conservative, he's still not as right as like a Ben Shapiro is or hyperbolic as like a Tucker Carlson is. He's he's not beyond gone, right? Or he's not, uh, he hasn't gone to the dark side in a, in a sort, weird sort of way, but he's kind of heading that direction. And I hope he realizes it. And uh, kind of goes back to the old Ruben style of podcast, but we'll just have to kind of wait and see, I guess. Yeah, you know, as 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 a centrist, I really valued that that willingness to engage with both sides. And his inter- he's very good at interviewing people. His skill at crafting questions and keeping the conversation going is really really good. And I think that's that's his strength. I, I think he needs. I, I I don't I don't love how he's interviewing now. I think his his consideration of how he writes his questions and things is not as good as it used to be again following that that radio talk show host way of 
interviewing people. You know, I think from what I can gather, he still holds the same views. I don't think any of that has changed based on what I've heard. I do think he is, he's probably a little bit more pro smaller government now after all the lockdowns because he's so frustrated with that. So I think before he would have fallen more on the side of the government does need to be intervening in XYZ areas and now he may not quite as much. But I think other than that, I think all of his other, his other liberal viewpoints are still the same. And he seems like a nice guy. Again, I don't think he's that funny. And when he tries to be funny, when he's doing his his direct message episodes, it just doesn't work for me. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I I think I'm going to come down on the side of I don't hate it, but I'm kind of meh about it. I don't think I'm going to subscribe. I'll probably just every once in a while randomly go, oh, let me go scan his YouTube and see who he's had as guests and maybe find if there's something interesting there. Because like I listen, I like listening to Adam Carolla episode. I hadn't heard from Adam because I used to listen to Adam Carolla like 10 years ago and I hadn't heard from him in forever. And so I was like, hey, hey, Adam Carolla. So I listened to that episode. And so, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't hate it. But it's not something I'm probably going to listen to all the time. I'm certainly not going to subscribe and, and be religious about listening to every single episode. But I'll keep an eye on it and see, um, you know, because again, I think he has the natural skill for interviewing. But he may just honestly not have a lot of choices left to him in terms of who he can interview because, you know, now that he's not viewed as being a true Democrat, um, I don't know that he's going to be able to get very many guests from that side of the aisle. So yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I don't hate it. It's kind of in this weird phase right now, and I'm just kind of waiting to see how it plays out. I do miss the 2016, 2017, 2018 Ruben, mm-hmm. uh, even maybe the early 2019 Ruben. But lately, in this past year, it's just I, I haven't kept up with them uh, simply for the reasons that you're stating, uh, and you know some of the other things that I had stated. And I hope maybe he comes back to his kind of like his original format and kind of tone things down a little bit. But and again, YouTube just doesn't recommend his content to me. It's very rare. So I guess I out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. So I'll have to keep an eye out on what guests he has. I mean, who knows? Mm-hmm. Michael Smalls was just recently on Lex Friedman. So hopefully maybe he shows up on Ruben again because uh, Mal- Michael Malice is always a entertaining guest uh, no matter where he's at. Does Michael Malice have a podcast? Of his own? It's a, I don't know if it's actually a podcast. I know it's definitely a live stream. It's called You're Welcome. Oh, that's right. It's called Y-O-U-R. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's, I'll have to look to see if it's actually a podcast phone. Uh, form but. i will too because maybe that's one we should review because he's he's so far ha- i've not ever heard him on his own show but i've heard him on other interview shows we've talked about and that is one interesting dude <laughs> <laughs> he's entertaining yeah he's definitely entertaining and uh he's he's always good on on ruben because it's kind of he's kind of just the opposite of ruben in a lot of ways so yeah i could see i could see ruben like what am i doing with this what, yeah. what how do i do this yeah <laughs> So anyways, uh, yeah, I don't hate it, but I'll, you know, keep an eye on it. But the current trajectory, I'm not a huge fan of. Have thoughts you want to share? Send us an email at whyihateyourpodcast at gmail.com or visit our website at whyihateyourpodcast.com. You can also find us at Hate Your Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Our intro, transition, and outro music is by Kevin McLeod and licensed under Creative Commons. Please see the show notes for details. 